Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Simon Gerstler. Simon is a 25-year sales veteran. He is co-CEO of Pipe Global. Simon, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Delighted to be on the show. Excellent. I came across an article that you wrote some time back about why you shouldn't be hiring for experience. And we're going to be delving into that topic in a minute. But before we do, could you give us 60 seconds on your background, please? Born and bred in London. I'm actually now living in Israel, in Tel Aviv. I've been here about 15 years. Actually, believe it or not, I started in accountancy, did about a year at PwC before I realized that not cut out to be an accountant and actually sales was my preferred method. So I started in old style sales. So I was door to door selling jewelry to you know, jewelry shops, a wholesaler. Got held up at gunpoint at one point and eventually moved into fashion, working for a custom tailor company, US company. Used to work in Canary Wharf and visit busy executives in their office, including actually Boris Johnson. So don't blame me, but I actually kitted him out with, with many suits over the years. He wasn't our, our best model, to be honest. That wasn't um, Tom James, was it? It was Tom James, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. One of my really good friends over in Sandler, Sean Coyle. That's how he started out. And uh, yeah, yeah, he, he was selling $3,000 suits by the half dozen to partners in KPMG, that sort of thing. Yeah, same type of thing. So we were, you know, it was a, it was a very well-run ship. And that's really where I got my sales training. I left in 2000 to go, you know, the whole dot-com boom is going on. So I ended up in selling SaaS products. And I worked for two companies, you know, on the founding team, which both exited a company called Totally Legal, so UK-based company in the legal recruitment sector. And then subsequently, a company called Graduate, selling to alumni, um, selling alumni networking platforms to universities and schools. And that brings me to around today, about a year ago, with, with a colleague from Graduate, we set up Pipe Global, and we're working with a, a bunch of companies you know, from very small to much bigger household names, advising them on their sales and marketing strategies. Married with, with four kids, ranging from 22 to 14. Big sports fan, you know, Arsenal fan, not that that's relevant for the podcast, and enjoy running and playing You've tennis as well. You've lost three quarters of my audience now, haven't you? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we actually won yesterday, so I can feel more confident about saying that than most other weeks for the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Simon, tell me this. What are the four most common questions people ask you about building sales teams? Often it's amazing, even companies that are quite far down the track, it's how do we scale a sales machine? Like, how do we take it from where we are today and, and scale it, which is a very common question, even from experienced entrepreneurs as well. They get stuck very easily. They've taken a few wrong turns. Often get asked, you know, who should we be hiring? What's the profile of the people we should be hiring? Strategy-wise, it's how do we, and based in 2020, what's our go-to-market strategy? Like, what should we be doing to bring on new prospects and also serve our clients well with valuable content. You know, what channels is that? What type of marketing channels should we be deploying? That's a very, very common question that we address pretty much every day at Pipe Global. And the other thing would be about expanding in different markets within a company. So you often get companies that have released one product that's very good. So they would be asking for my advice is, should they stick with that existing product or should they go into different verticals, different regions, et cetera? And often the temptation is to try and go very wide and sometimes the best strategy is to push what you already know best. Okay, so like I said right at the outset, one of the reasons why we started talking was you put forward the idea that you should not be hiring 
sales development reps for experience. First of all, why do you say that? Because virtually every, every job description tediously says must have two years, five years, three years experience, um, either in a vertical market or selling a particular type of product. And why um, is that bullshit? Mark, in my view, that's a very, very lazy way of recruiting. It allows you to just take the safe option. Um, where it comes from is actually my own experience. I've recruited dozens of um, SDRs who actually came without any background in the market at all. Part of it is because I feel an obligation to the next generation to, to give them a chance. Otherwise, where do they even get a foot in the door? Often, once they get that foot in the door, they really repay you with loyalty and hard work and dedication. It's their foot into the sales world. And just in terms of success, I've just seen it time and time again. There's other things I look for rather than have they done a year's experience. And sometimes it goes even further. They say not only do you have to have a year's experience, but you have to have it within cybersecurity or fintech. It's got to be in that exact vertical, which is crazier still. And in your experience, how often have you seen uh, people hire so-called experienced reps uh, only to discover that they turn over incredibly quickly? It happens more often than it doesn't happen, to be honest, Marcus. It's, it's a recurring trend. I mean, sales development, sales, starting sales career, it's not easy when you've got to get on the phone and you're getting a lot of rejections. It does take a particular type of character. So it happens a lot. You've got someone who's ticked the boxes. They might have you know, even been fired from previous jobs and they popped around, but they've ticked the box of three or four years, whereas the sort of criteria I go for are more characteristics, resilience, you know, how, how quickly can you bounce back from having a day when you're getting nowhere, Really just being able to think on your feet as well, that's something that you can suss out in an interview just by asking the right questions and seeing how they react to situations. Because anyone who's doing self-development the same in 2020 they were doing in 2017 is doing it the wrong way, and that is 100% correct. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah (laughs) to that one. Amen. So again, key takeaways here. Just because someone has so-called experience in a particular vertical market or in a particular role, does not mean that they will perform well in your role. The majority, both in Simon and my experience, of people who you hire on the basis of having experience don't work out. That's more than 50%. It's worse than a flip of a coin. And in fact, in my experience, it's closer to the 75 80% where people hire on that basis. And as he said, it is the lazy way of hiring. Copying and pasting a job description that got you the person you've just fired or lost, probably isn't the best way to go out and hire up, which means that you hire better than the last person who was in that post. And look for characteristics like resilience. Uh, Look for their motivation, which is made up of their beliefs, their attitudes, and their values. Because without the right motivation, someone is going to die on their ass in an SDR role. It's hard. It's tough, it's repetitive rejection, and it requires consistency. All the best SDRs I've ever come across, they have real intelligence about them. They're not just telephone jockeys. So Simon, tell me this, what are the habits that you see in the best SDRs that they can demonstrate that they don't necessarily have to have uh, that experience? I think it's that they can follow a process because um, it's very much process driven. When you're, you've got potentially a few hundred prospects that you're following and chasing over a period of time, if you're not very well organized and able to follow a set process, then you're doomed to fail as, as good as you're on the phone and the other outreach. So I'm looking at people that have 
demonstrated that maybe if they're inexperienced in other facets of their life. So you could be looking at someone, and I've got experience of someone who's achieved something good within the sporting world, for example. They're like a black belt karate, which is very disciplined, and they've stuck at it for 10, 15 years. They've got, they've got, they've got to follow and be taught well and listen and on board. It could be someone who's I actually once hired someone who was runner up in the Mr. UK bodybuilding. And just to get to that level, to you know, that discipline, he used to eat five meals a day. You couldn't get more than two or three hours without eating a whole chicken. But just that discipline, that day after day, repetitive, and being able to get up the next morning and do exactly the same, that's a really good indicator of potential success in the role. Absolutely. So again, good habits, good process orientation, discipline. And uh, what I find also is good planning. People who are good planners and are organized. I want to see that someone is organized in any sales role, uh, but particularly for an SDR, because you have to plow through a lot of leads over the course of the year. And the other thing is you have to be willing to admit when you don't know something and ask for help. If I think about people like Alexine Mudawa, if I think about people like Gabrielle, uh, Blackwell. These guys are incredible in terms of their work ethic, but they have massive vulnerability and humility, uh, and they're willing to ask for help, which a lot of people aren't. So talk to me about the importance of the onboard, pre-onboarding and onboarding process for SDRs. So the, the onboarding process is critical because you could find someone, as you say, Marcus, with all the right criteria, but actually... If you don't give them the right training and onboarding, then you're not setting them up to, to be a big success in the role. So as I said before, it's changing so often. So if I'm training someone today, it's going to be different to how I trained someone a couple of years ago. So for example, using LinkedIn in a much more effective way, it would depend on the industry, but almost every industry I've worked in, even, even industries like medical, where it's doctors and surgeons, and they said they'll never be on LinkedIn, they invariably are. So you've got to be able to reach out in, in different ways. You've got to be able to maybe do voice messages or video messages. You've got to know how to personalize a message so it doesn't look like it's the 50th you sent in a row that day. So in terms of onboarding, you want someone who's coachable, who's willing to learn. You want someone who's got a, a pleasant phone manner. You need to do a lot of role play at the beginning in terms of that phone outreach as well. And you also want to see them, rather than give them a templated email in, on a plate for them, you want to say, right, if this was you today, how would you approach someone on LinkedIn or via email? What would be the, the first the three or four sentences you'd use to sell the product? And obviously, the product training is critical then as well. You, then between the two of you would maybe work out the, the ideal one that will be fit for that market. But certainly, I don't like spoon-feeding people. I like to see how they think, how they adapt. Because again, if you're using the same emails that you were using a year ago, you're probably just taking a lazy approach and not really listening to the feedback the market's giving you. So my good friend, Zach Seltz, says it's not the strong who devour the weak, it's the agile who devour the slow. And right. never more is that the case and than in an SDR environment, particularly now we're in the uh, grip of yet another lockdown with COVID. You have to be agile, you've got to be able to break through the noise, and you've got to be creative in your approach. One size does definitely not fit all, and if you're only using one channel, chances are you're going to be ignored and you're just going to be treated as noise and uh, an interruption. So you need to be able to use the phone. You need to be able to use email. You need to be able to use LinkedIn. Content is very powerful. Referrals is very powerful. But very, very few people 
in sales are versatile enough to use multiple channels consistently and effectively. So, Simon, tell me this. What about coaching? Um, As a manager of SDRs, how much coaching is minimum necessary? It depends a lot on the product, to be honest. So there are products that I've onboarded people recently where it's been you know, a handful of days of training because the product wasn't necessarily so complex. You've also got to understand that that's the, the absolute basis before you can even really go to the next stage of the SDR work involved. So I haven't got a hard and fast rule. It depends on you know, the product to a certain extent. It also depends on the confidence of the person you've hired. So if we're going back to the taking someone straight out of school, university approach, and they haven't even worked before, and I've taken people like that, they might at the beginning, even though you've identified great skills, they might not be confident and they might want their hand holding a lot more. Or you get people who are a bit more bullish and they're prepared to get on the phone that those first few times, make some mistakes, break their teeth a bit and learn and adapt. So I very much, I very much adapt it to the person. I've got my, you know, effective routines to go through, but I don't do it set in stone. It will depend on who I'm training. Okay, so that's training, but I'm talking about coaching. Right. So in in terms of coaching, you mean in terms of the the feedback on on the calls, etc.? Feedback on calls, regular coaching calls, uh, having a cadence, making sure that you're looking after their mental welfare as well as their personal development and their skills development. I've always seen myself as, as more on the mentoring side than the you know hard manager comes down top on someone. So that's been my personality within sales as well, and I've been managing and, and leading people. It's more that mentoring thing. And certainly, you know, pretty laid back in terms of someone needs time to deal with a family situation, for example, working, you know, knowing a bit about their background, you know, you know, their, their family self, et cetera. When we go back to Tom James as an example. So one of the reasons why I chose Tom James, and I really was really looking at that time in my career for a proper grounding. I've been at this jewelry company where they just gave me some jewels and said, right, off you go, sell it. So I was looking to really be onboarded properly. And Tom James became, came across as more of a family environment. They actually um, took my wife out to a kosher restaurant, uh, in Jewish, et cetera, and observant of dietary laws. So they said, we want to sell it to your wife as well, while this opportunity. So they said, choose the nicest kosher restaurant in London and we want to, you know, it's a family thing. So very much about that. So my having learned from the best in a way, what I wanted to do myself is to really understand the background from a, from that aspect as well. In terms of coaching, it's ongoing feedback. So just hearing the calls, if they recorded a call which didn't go well, then again, it's to do with, as you say, the best people are the ones that say, hey, I messed up. How can I improve next time? You want to get them into that feeling, not being embarrassed, and actually, you'd, you'd rather they did that than, you know, sped ahead by themselves and ran into roadblocks and, um, and brick walls. Where is the best kosher restaurant in London, just out of curiosity? It's called Kai Feng. It's in Hendon. It's a kosher Chinese restaurant. So if a you're ever in the local... Chinese restaurant. <laughs> wow. I was watching Michael Wood's documentary series called The Story of China. And there is one sort of last remnants of a Chinese Jewish community there. So uh, really fascinating uh, series if you ever get the chance to watch it. So Kai Feng. Kai Feng, yeah. There, there was actually where, where is that? a province in China called Kai Feng where they had a Jewish community like, you know, a few hundred years ago. Yeah. Whereabouts is it in London? So it's in Hendon. Oh, right. London. Okay. I'll definitely have to look that up then. Excellent. Yeah. So tell me this then, in terms of measurement and accountability, because again, I think there's an awful lot of pointless measurement and lots of lag indicators that SDRs are being forced to track 
that don't help them improve their performance or drive sales forward? What should you really be measuring for SDRs? Well, ultimately, I go backwards. It's, it's about booking demos. So you, you go to your target, say 20 demos, 25, whatever is a fair target, which you know you, you see depending on the product, the industry you're working in, the length of the sales cycle, et cetera. Uh, and then you work back from there. Now, as you said yourself, it's very much multi-channel approach. So just saying it's, it's not a great indicator to see, did you make 100 dials today? Because it might be better to do 20 dials and then spend two or three hours on LinkedIn personalizing 10 responses where you get two meetings because it's hyper-focused. So I think it's you've got to be flexible as a, a as a coach as a leader to to look at the right metrics for that role. And again, they, they could be evolving depending on the feedback the SDR is giving you as well. So if they're getting blocked in one channel, then how do you approach in another channel? So metrics are very very important. And obviously, but I've never been someone that says right, you know, I need you to be on the phone for seven hours a day. You've got to be practical. You've got to see that there's progress. You've got to see that they're the approach that they're taking is the correct approach. I, I promised you that we might argue, so um, uh, buckle up. <laughs> I, I have this real bone of contention around SDRs being measured on demos. In order for a prospect to qualify for a demo, how do they earn the right to have one? What are the criteria, the, the gates that they have to uh, jump through so that they pay for the demo through their qualification? Again, it will depend on industry. So some, and it would be very much as part of the role of leading that team, it would be working out what would be compatible to that industry. Some, for some companies I've worked at, if they haven't got budget for the next 12 months, then as great as the name is, you would almost not book the demo then, for example. It's often to do with, are they bringing the right person within that organization to the demo? So if they're bringing in you know, a great name, so I was working, as I said, in the university space, but if they're bringing someone very junior or in the wrong department that had no chance to advance the process, then you're not really doing someone a favor just by setting up a demo for the sake of it. So when in this, uh, the buyer's journey uh, should a demo be offered? Um, in, when in the buyer's journey, it should, it should be towards the beginning of the buyer's journey. So obviously you've reached out to them, uh, either it could be inbound, it could be, you know, you've reached out to them by, by various ways. So the demo should be offered, the SDR, if you can really simplify the SDR role, it is to deliver on a plate the right person in the right company um, who's fit, um, you know, potentially interested in buying that product or service. So it is pretty early in the process. I'm, I generally work with SDRs where, I wouldn't call, that, call them secretaries, but sometimes that's the best way to portray them because they can otherwise get caught Thank up you. in pricing discussions, et cetera, much too early in the process. And whereas really they want to set it up for the account executive to take them to the next stage. Right. Okay. So again, bounce it back over the net to you. In my experience, what I've found is many vendors race to do a demo because they think that the product will sell itself to some degree and that they need to evidence that the product can do whatever it is that the buyer wants. Unfortunately, most people who request or want demos are at best gatekeepers who can only say no or maybe, they can't say yes. And the people who have authority to buy rarely give a damn about the product. What they want is they're looking for an outcome. They're looking for a solution to a problem. So an early demo is a premature demo um, actually extends the length of the sales cycle, reduces the probability of closing, and uh, often gets the vendor 
trapped in mud spinning their wheels. Tell me I'm wrong and why. Again, it will depend on, on the product or service. I mean, I think part of what the SDR should be doing is getting the right person to that demo. And then sometimes it'll be someone who's very senior that can't get there. But within reason, part of that qualification process, almost even if you're talking to someone who's like mid-management, is that they need to bring the senior manager um, who's their boss to the, to the demo. That's part of the tip, qualified call. So that, that's part of the, the, the role of that person. In terms of showing stuff on the demo, I think I, I believe that once you get them to the demo, I, I agree with you, it shouldn't be show and tell feature, you know, just feature, 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 death by feature and death by PowerPoint. It should be going into, as you say, the, you know, the why, why they'd be buying it, how it addresses their pain. And if you've got skillful account executive um, salesperson representing the company, then even if they're slightly hazy while they came to the demo in the beginning, but they're in the right sector, the right product, then the skilled account executive should be able to take that on and you know, make something of that. Okay. Uh, again, experience has taught me that often the vendor is desperate to show the product because you know they, they love showing photos of their ugly kid. And the challenge with that is they haven't done enough in-depth qualification. So uh, again, how much qualifying and what quality and kind of information should SDRs be gathering before they commit company time, money, and resource to a demo? So that they should be investing as part of that role. You've got someone who's potentially interested in the call. You've got to make sure, as you say, you're not wasting someone's time and clogging up a, a potential sales pipeline as well. So they should be asking pretty direct questions about if, if it's the right person, if it's the right product, if they're suffering from the problems that the solution addresses. So that, that should be, you know, to agree with you, it should be earlier on in the process. So when they you get to that call, you know that you've got a potential chance to, not necessarily in that call, but to sell to that person going forward. So that, that is part of the skill. And part of the skill of, uh, of an SDR is asking questions and asking the right questions and smart questions that will tease out the answers. Sometimes they don't know it themselves until you're asking the right questions. They don't even realize that that issue is hampering their business. I'd go uh, even further that the SDR needs to make sure they get the answer to the question they actually asked, not the one the prospect wants to give them. They don't listen with happy ears because, again, I think part of the, uh, the challenge and where there is an inordinate amount of waste in sales is the handover between the SDR and the AE because the SDR has listened with happy ears or they haven't asked enough questions. And the way they are measured and compensated drives them to set demos or appointments. And I'm curious in your experience, how you've been able to create compensation plans that drive desired behavior rather than the unintended consequence of undesirable behaviors. Well, ultimately, when um, the, the SDR comp plans that I've designed have been based on qualified demos rather than demos. So that's it's not in their interest to book 30 demos of which half of them are the wrong person, the wrong company, just someone that they promised a 10-minute chat because they wanted a conversation rather than to see a product. So if you're doing that, in that with that in mind, actually, it's in their interest even more so to make sure that they're sending quality people in the right companies um, to someone to do that. I mean, often in companies, there's been a typical SDR AE tension where the AE will say, what the hell was that? And the SDRs, no, no, when I spoke to him, he said something differently, she said something different. And sometimes you've always become like a referee between the two because uh, there's money at stake and there's someone, an AE doesn't want to take it into their pipeline to clog it up and you know give an artificial 
um, idea of where the business is and actually put pressure on themselves down the line if they've got 20 calls from the last month, but only a few of them are actually decent, for example. So you are sometimes playing the role of referee. I mean, companies I've been at where they've recorded the SDR calls and they've had to almost like replay them. So no, they, they did genuinely say that. On the demo, you actually messed up because you almost talked them out of it. So that has become a thing in companies I've worked at. The best companies I've worked in in terms of the flow is having an SDR a partnership. It was almost like a football partnership of, you know, someone crossing the ball in and nodding it into the top corner where you've actually got an SDR and AE who are completely in sync. They almost instinctively know the quality of the call because they're feeding back to each other all the time. They're in regular communication. And on that note, again, the best SDRs and the best AEs that I know do have that partnership and they help each other to get better. Uh, and the AE spends time regularly on a pr- practically a daily basis coaching the SDR on why a call was good, why it could have been improved, yeah. and helps them deal with difficult objections, difficult situations, how to avoid painting themselves into a box, making sure that the SDR is constantly improving. Because um, you know, there, there, there are two uh, proverbs about the tide. One is a rising tide raises all boats. And the other one is you get to see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And I think too often there isn't that partnership. The AE will sometimes see the SDR as a relatively uh, unskilled ignoramus who's there to do their bidding. And that's the worst kind of AE because they're selfish um, and they're not helping raise uh, the SDR's game. SDRs do a vital job. And they do a difficult job and they need the support of the AE to give honest, constructive criticism. So when you're giving feedback, the three Ps that David Sandler came up with, potency, protection and permission need to be in place. So both sides can state their opinion. They're not going to be punished for what they say. And they're both protected, but equally, they have permission to give their honest perspective. And the net result of that is that you end up developing a fantastic partnership. And I look at someone like Alexine Mudawap and what she does uh, in terms of coaching her SDRs every day without fail. She's constantly helping them to raise the bar on their own performance, which in turn makes her job easier. And it's crazy for you to treat an SDR poorly because they they will suck up your time on bad meetings with non-prospects and non-opportunities if you don't help them to improve. Now, if they keep making the same mistake, then you have to have a difficult conversation and you need to confront it. Don't let it go on for too long. But you do let them fail. You just don't let the business fail. And yeah. this is one of the big challenges here. Okay, so we've touched on compensation. We've touched on onboarding, recruitment and training. What I'm curious about is career pathing for SDRs. Obviously, people coming into an SDR role are likely to be at the younger end of the spectrum. And experience has taught me that these guys want growth, they want experiences, they want challenge, and they want to learn. So right in the, at the point of recruitment, what's the conversation that you have with SDRs uh, about their career opportunities? Well, this is actually interesting, Marcus, because it's something I didn't mention in the beginning, but it, it is very relevant for this question you've asked. And it's a great question. I'm normally looking at an SDR, and this is maybe 
not unique to me, but maybe it's something you won't agree with, or people won't agree with. When I'm recruiting an, S, uh, an SDR, I'm effectively also looking at them saying, would this person, has this person got the potential to become an AE in 18 months, two years, two and a half years in That's my company true. or in a similar company? And I'm looking, if it's someone who I think is going to be boxed in as an SDR for many, many years to come, and I'm working at growing a company, that actually is a sort of negative strike against them. What I found in my experience is, in terms of the role itself, it's very hard to do the role for you know, three, four, five years. So you've got to offer them the ability to manage other SDRs and get much more involved in the administration and managerial side and develop them as managers and coaches in their own rights. Or they're looking to effectively move into sales and get promoted um, within a time frame that, that, that's realistic and would you know play into their abilities they've demonstrated over that time. So I'm looking at someone who I think is ambitious enough to not want to be an SDR in, in two or three years' time. Maybe I said I'm wrong in that. I'm looking at someone who's got that ambition who, if I'm at that company, I could onboard as an AE within that time frame. I'm not averse to someone who wants to stay in an SDR role, but like you, I'm looking to find out what their motivation is. I want to find out what type of career they want and what they want, their, what choices they want their career to afford them. I want to understand about the life that they're trying to create for themselves. Because if uh, an SDR doesn't really have a long-term vision, then chances are they're going to be very, very transactional. And when I'm training, I'm in the throes of recruiting three sales teams at the moment. And when I'm looking for my SDRs and my uh, junior salespeople, I'm looking for people who are going to be prospecting for customers who are going to be customers five years down the road. We're interested in attracting lifetime customers. So philosophically, what we're not going to be doing is holding them. And again, I'm sure I'm going to get bitten in the arse on this one, but I I don't want them focusing on this month's uh, or this quarter's target. I want them focusing long-term. I don't want transactional salespeople. I want strategic salespeople. And I want my SDRs to think like that as well. I want them to think about the business. I want them to think about where the customer is. Uh, you know, which season are they in? Are they in spring, summer, autumn, or winter? And where are they in their life cycle? Where 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 are they in their? Uh, are they in startup? Are they in continuation? Are they in growth? Are they in turnaround or recovery? And I want them to have business acumen quickly. So again, how do you ensure that SDRs really understand the business in which they uh, to whom they sell? Because I think it's very easy to just fall into the trap of being a product seller, in which case all you're doing is peddling a pill and no one wants to pay good money for a pill. I want people um, who are insightful in their questioning, uh, who are bringing value every time they call, because otherwise they're just another interruption and you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. So what are you doing to ensure that your SDRs are uh, bigger and better than the comp- uh, competitors in terms of their understanding of the business and the world and environment in which the customers operate? They need to be someone who can dig much, much deeper into that business. I remember back in 2000, I was working at a company called totallylegal.com. There was not no such thing as an SDR back in those days. So you did your own SDR, you prospected yourself, you generated your own leads among law firms and legal recruitment agencies. And one of the first things my CEO at the time did, which always stuck with me, he gave me a pile of the lawyer magazine, which was going back about two years and said, you know, delve through these. You, you need to know the industry inside out that you're selling to. 
you need to be an expert. And it's no different for me who was running, you know, effectively brought in as a first salesperson and wasn't really a classic SDR at the time. But there's no difference to being an SDR today, really understanding, knowing the industry, you know, listening to podcasts, joining the, the LinkedIn groups that are relevant and actually contributing to them as well. That's a sensible way. If you're, you know that your target market is in a LinkedIn group and you as an SDR are commenting, liking, sharing, adding your insights, then it's more valuable conversation to be had as well. And so it's like, again, so when you're looking at the people to do that, it's not someone who necessarily worked for the last three years as an SDR, but someone who's got the aptitude, the ability, and the motivation to really delve much deeper, understand that market, and the, effectively the inclination to do so, not just trying to cruise through that role. So in that case, does it make, because again, a lot of people, when they're looking for SDRs, won't take someone who's maybe uh, making a career change into sales. Have you had success by hiring people who've got industry knowledge, or maybe they've been an accountant, or they've done something other than selling software, and then bringing them into uh, an SDR role with a little bit more maturity? Yeah, very much so. I've taken people who are you know, in their late 30s, their 40s, who were looking to completely flip career either because of circumstance or because they didn't want to go down that path anymore. At the interview, you're asking them, saying, right, I understand this is a new area for you. What skills have you learned as an accountant, as a whatever that previous career was, that you think would put you in good stead? Like, why are we sitting together even talking about this role? Tell you know, effectively sell me why you should be taking this job, for example. And hearing their responses and questioning them and making sure that they're genuine as well. When I, myself, as I said, I spent a year as an accountant, gave that up and went into sales. And, you know, I, I actually didn't have many people willing to take a chance on me back in the day because they said, well, same thing. You've got no sales experience. Why are we going to take a risk on you? I mean, the simple response to that is how many times have you hired people with experience and they've turned into an absolute dog? But, okay, this then raises some really interesting questions about having that conversation with your own leadership team. Because undoubtedly, questions will be asked of you, have you lost your mind that you're recruiting outside of the faith? So uh, what, what are those conversations like? It depends on, on sort of the, the role you've got within the organization and the credibility you've brought with previous hires. So if I've been able to demonstrate from people outside of the organization that I've brought people in who had no experience and who've gone on to fly and do really well, then my senior management team are going to have faith in me that I'm going to make the correct decision again. Again, it's my, my neck on the line every time. If I'm hiring three duds in a row, it's going to come back to me. So I've got to sell it, I've got to, sell it to them of why this person, what the unique attributes they bring would put them above someone who did the same role for two years in another organization. But not to, again, it's not that I would never hire someone who had experience, but going back to the original premise of the conversation, it's that attitude that if you haven't got experience, you're not even in the game. So if you've got two years experience, you want to stay as an SDR, you've got great skills, and I'll be stupid not to consider you alongside the, the newbie as well. So I think it's the way you, you sell it back into the company. And I've been fortunate to have worked for CEOs in the past who've given me absolute faith and trusted my judgments and let me run with my decisions as well. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, if you were a store manager and you hired anyone, a janitor or someone, and they left within six months, you were flown out to the headmaster's office to explain why that person left. You only did that once, really. So my question is this. I see the battlefield littered with the corpses of burnt out and failed SDRs. 
And my premise is that that's the manager's fault. It's whoever hired them and didn't set them up to succeed. Um, So if you're advising leaders of businesses, founders, CEOs, owners, what would you advise them to do around training and developing managers? It's key. If, you haven't, if you're not training the managers properly, then the company's only going to get to a certain level. That's the absolute key. So I think that's to invest in the, the training for the managers themselves, see what, where they can develop their own skills. You should have managers that want to, to go on courses, to learn more, to read more, to understand more about the sector as well. But you've got to, as a CEO, as a senior management, give the ability for those managers to make those decisions. You know, you've got micromanagers, the company gets bigger every hire that they're doing. So you've got to give them the tools. It could be going on a, on a managerial course, for example. It could be something that, that's going to put their, give their skills a, a boost to the next level. So you've got to invest in your managers, as you say, so that they're not making the decisions that land them in front of the headmaster's office, <laughs> which isn't going to help anybody. So for those of you listening, pay heed. Uh, middle sales management have the most precarious position in any business I've ever come across. They're the most undertrained undercoached and under-supported people. They're typically two quarters and they're out. They're normally promoted for being good at selling, not necessarily good at managing, which are totally different skill sets. If you are not coaching and developing and giving a good runway to managers uh, from sales role, if you're promoting internally and giving them a 15, 18-month runway, learning their craft so that Early on in their sales role, they're mentoring a junior new hire. They're coaching, they're training, they're doing ride-alongs, they're listening in on calls, they're doing call analytics. They are running sales meetings, they're running daily huddles. You're helping them learn how to manage the CRM reporting. You're helping them to put together the forecast. And then uh, if you don't do that and you just throw them in at the deep end, most of them will flounder very, very quickly. And the failure rate of managers is horrific. I think the last uh, stat I saw is that the average new sales manager lasts no longer than a year in that post. Now, you've got a double whammy because you've lost a good salesperson and you've gained a terrible manager who then probably drives off your top salespeople in that team. So make sure you invest in your managers. Okay, tell me this. I see... An awful lot of investment in technology. Far too many managers in both marketing and sales see technology as some kind of magic bullet, but the results don't speak positively about the investments. I don't think it's because the technology is bad. I think often there is too much technology, uh, it's applied badly, and good technology applied, applied badly is worse than doing nothing. So what's your advice in terms of the minimum level of technology that a good SDR sales team requires in order to do their job excellently without getting bogged down in all the tech? Uh, I'm like you, Marcus. I don't believe in having loads of different products and services. So you obviously need a, a good CRM, be it Salesforce or whatever that would be. I think all um, SDR should have sales navigators. They can really filter through their audience properly, get the right insights and approach the right people. Um, there are some sort of automated tools that will help you connect, um, et cetera, as well, that may or may not be applicable depending on the, 
the number that you're you're trying to to reach out to. I can see from your reaction there that you're not a fan of those. And also just on the metric side, so even things like you know just seeing who's opened the emails and then being able to compare email open rates to what happens down the line. You do want some good data, and there's some good ones that you want, anything you want needs to be able to slot very well into your CRM. So any add-on tool should have great integrations with that. But ultimately, you want to be looking at two or three reports and not 10 or 15. So I agree. And it can be a distraction as well. You can spend so long syncing everything up with all the various tools that actually you're wasting hours a week on that. And actually, this is a results-driven game at the end of the day. Uh, absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, what about conversation analytics, tools like Refract, Gong, Chorus? It depends on the size of the team. So if you've got like, you know two, three people, I don't. I think you can have more granularity of what's happening. It's much easier if you've got. Once you get to a certain level of team, then those become much more applicable. So I, I know I'm familiar with with all those tools, and they they have some very useful insights and on the reporting side. So if you're looking to onboard and scale properly, then they should be somewhere within your suite of tools. Once you go past you know three, four, five salespeople, for example. Interestingly enough, one of the qualities that I see in the top managers of SDRs is that every morning they spend time listening to calls that their SDRs have made. And that's their pretty much breakfast for them. And again, I can't stress enough how important it is that you pay attention to what your SDRs are doing in the real world and use every call. I mean, one of the things that the real payoffs of uh, lockdown is that everything has gone virtual, which means that every call can be recorded, which means that every call can be reviewed and can be a self-coaching tool. It can be a tool that the manager can coach the salesperson on, and you can create an archive of best practice calls so that you can help onboard people more effectively. And that's 30 days uh, during their notice period, I think is really critical. I have a view that you have a 120-day onboarding process because in the first four months, a new employee is putting the manager, the job, the company, the customers, the people they work with on probation. So make that first 120 days really count. But the 30 days before is where you can get people up to speed. If you listen to guys like David Weiss and Tom Castley, in that pre-onboarding process, Jerry Hill as well, Richard Smith at Refract. And these guys all give calls to uh, new hires and they listen to those before they join so that they're imbued in the structure, the framework, the cadence, the pace, the language that they use, the different, uh, they're familiar by the time they arrive with the kind of objections that they're likely to be receiving, the talk tracks, all of this kind of stuff. So you set someone up to succeed before they even walk through your door or you provision them onto your CRM system. So again, I can't stress how important it is that you prepare people and help them build rock-solid foundations. Remember how hard it is. If you're a fusty old bugger like me and Simon, we've gone through this, and I think a lot of us have forgotten how hard it was in the early days. I hark back to my first sales job, which was walking around Stockport in a horrible, drizzly February. It's always drizzly in Stockport. And it's very hilly in new shoes, knocking on doors, walking into retailers, getting rejected constantly. And that was the time when you had to have a pocket full of 10p coins so you could make calls from phone boxes with that disgusting stench of the phone. And we've forgotten how hard it was. 
And it's really tough out there. Um, so make sure you set your SDRs up to succeed, not fail. Simon, this has been really enlightening. Thank you. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Well, I've set up this, this new business, Pipe Global, in the last year or so. So I'm wrestling about how I'm going to grow that, how I'm going to keep the um, pipeline of our, our new clients going. The nature of what we do is come and go because we're helping clients at a certain stage of their journey. So I've always got to be almost paranoid that within three to six months, they'll get someone you know, internally to replace the service I'm offering them as an external consultant. So I've always got to be prospecting, although at the moment I've, I haven't really publicized what I'm doing in terms of outreach to new clients. I've done it actually through LinkedIn and through social media. We've got generally incoming leads, but as someone who's got a, a new business and with the obligations to my family, I need to be able to, you know, to keep pushing in and make sure that the seven or eight clients I've got now are either still there in six months' time or have replaced them with another few on their behalf. Have you ever considered having people buy your uh, resource as a reward for top performers? I actually haven't. And, and that's actually really interesting now. I really like that idea. I actually haven't really thought of that. But I, think, I, think, I, I, I suppose I'd have to feel confident enough that my name in the market was sufficient for someone to say, wow, that, that's got value to me. And maybe if I'm still not well-known in what I'm doing, then I'll go, you know, who the hell is that? What, why, why is that a reward? Well, if you think about this, if you're a, a sales leader, do you want your high earners to be spending their time on a high value but high effort activity that takes them away from speaking to customers? What we all want is our top salespeople speaking to or in front of customers. We yep. don't want them spending three days on the phone every week in order to book five or six meetings. If you can feed them those five or six meetings and they're doing three meetings a day, that means you get 15 times they're in front of customers instead of three. That increases your profitability fivefold. Yep. There's real value in selling that as a, that proposition. Yeah. No, sure, sure. It's something I hadn't considered, but it's, but it's a great idea. And as I try and evolve how we're going to grow as a business, so those are the sort of things I need to consider in order to provide value and keep this momentum going of this, this new business I've got. Excellent. Okay. Um, you've got a golden ticket. And you could go back and advise the idiot Simon, age 23. What choice bit of life advice or uh, business advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored, but he would have benefited from throughout his career? Well, when I was 23, I was, you know, just graduated university. I was working at this big accounting firm and it was definitely in the wrong career. It took me very little time to figure that out. I think it's actually having confidence in, in yourself. I had very little confidence when I gave up this job. I'd been to good university, got a degree that was mapping out a career like within a professional services environment. I had very little confidence. And if I knew now where I've got to, you know, 25 years later, then I would have felt much more confident. It took me a while to build up that confidence and my, my own ability. And I think part of that is by using some of these tools and learning across the thing that you build that up yourself. But for a very, very long time, and even still to this day, you know, I suffer from the old imposter syndrome. Is it going to come crashing down? Am I, am I really you know, delivering value to everybody like I'm trying to? So I think it's about confidence. Once you've got confidence in what you do, then a lot of things fall into place. Now, this is really interesting because, uh, again, one of the lessons that I learned through my time with Sandler is the crucial importance of self-concept. You will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. And 
there is a difference between your role and your identity. Your identity is who you are, and your role is what you do. And this touches on something that we probably should have spoken about, so I'll bring it into conversation, which is you can't fail at who you are. You can fail in role. And I think so many SDRs are afraid of failure because either they've been brought up to uh, see failure as a personality defect or they've been punished for it in role. And so they play it safe. And I think one of the most important lessons that I've uh, learned along the way, and it's taken me far too long, is that you should maximize your risk. You should risk failure every day. And if you're not failing every day, I think you've just wasted that day in the same way that if you haven't captured at least three good lessons, you've wasted that day. So in terms of that confidence, that confidence comes from failing, learning, applying the failure, applying the lessons of failure and getting better. And what pushed me uh, into making this change, because I left Sandler a couple of weeks ago, And for a long time, I wasn't really sure, should I, shouldn't I? And family circumstances meant that we needed to make a change. But what gave me the confidence was the amount of times I've been to speak to people who own profit and loss accounts of 200 million, 500 million, billion pounds a year. And they clearly understood less about selling and running a sales operation than I did. Um, And they were earning big bucks. And I looked at their numbers and their results and their turnover rates, and their levels of profitability, and the amount of money and time they threw at marketing that was consistently failing to achieve results. I mean, one of the reasons why I argued with you about demos is often I go into companies and they have half a percent to 6% conversion rate after they've demoed. I mean, what on God's earth is that all about? Yeah. So that whole piece around fear holding you back Don't worry about it. Nothing you do in sales is likely to be fatal unless you're selling something that is health and safety related. Fair enough. Okay. But if you fuck up a cold call, no one dies. Okay. So go out and take lots of risks. Don't worry if you mess up. If you're doing the cold call right, they won't even know where you're calling from anyway. Then if you really feel the urge, just mention a competitor as you hang up. (laughs) 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 Okay. Tell me this, what books or videos, audios have you um, really been inspired by? Or what are you reading at the moment you think other people should pay heed to? I've actually, just in the last few years, I've actually stopped reading novels. And and I've been reading a lot of psychology books, not necessarily related to sales, but the actual learnings for sales are are incredible. So the, the last few books I've read are all related to habits and psychology and understanding people. And I think that's really, even at this stage of my sales career, really sharpened up and understood and able to have better listening skills to put myself much better in the seat of the other person. So it's quite a complicated book um, called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who yeah, actually won the Nobel Prize. Um, but it's really good about how the mind works and, you know, autopilot in the brain, etc. So a lot of it um, I've been taking in is on the psychology side. And I think it's just got huge benefits. And I think there's a tremendous amount of psychology behind all of us as sales professionals, you know, SDR, AEs, et cetera. And if you don't understand how humans work, not even how they buy, but how they work, then it's very difficult to be giving your best yourself. There's some fabulous books around heuristics. So there's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by 
Daniel Kahneman and Emma Stavesky. Um, Dan Ariely's books are all relate uh, to a similar subject as well, yeah. looking at heuristics, which are shortcuts to idiocy by and large. Um, yeah. But you know, it's how the brain works on autopilot. The Primitive Brain is a very good book. And uh, I'm really uh, thoroughly enjoying a, a book by a guy called Talis uh, Teixeira, T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A, Understanding the Customer Value Chain. Understanding how customers go through the process of deciding that they need help, that they need a solution. Because I think very often we forget that customers do not go through the same journey that we as salespeople think that they do. Salespeople and marketing people as well often make the mistake of assuming it's when we touch them through our marketing or our outreach and when they buy, and that's the customer journey. The customer journey may have started months or even years before, and they have to live with the output for years afterwards. And if you don't understand that, then you'll find yourself in deep, deep trouble. It's worth following a couple of people. A guy called Martin Lucas from Gap in the Matrix. He does some really fascinating stuff. And his basic premise is humans don't understand humans. I would definitely follow Colin Shaw, and his uh, blog, Beyond Philosophy, and his podcast is really fabulous. And I would also pay attention to Mark Schaefer, Marketing Rebellion, because right. that builds from the, the psychology of buyers. And it, you know, the whole premise is you start with the user and build out backwards from there. Another book I actually omitted to mention, but it brings it full circle a little bit in terms of the whole SDR thing, was a book called by Charles Durig on yeah. Habits which is a great book. And, and ultimately, what I'm looking for when I'm hiring an inexperienced SDR potentially is it, is it someone that can develop or has already got the right habits that are going to make them successful. So that was a great book as well. So I'm a big believer in habits forming everything. And it's not just about in the workplace. It's about your family life, your social life, you know, the way you exercise and everything. It all comes down to habits. So for many, many years, I didn't really buy into the value of habits. And the a few of the books I've read have been around that topic, and I'd recommend Charles Durig's book as well. Two, two other things I'd strongly recommend people read. Charles Lambdin's blog, Columbus's Egg, is fabulous. He works for Intel. He's a coach within Intel. Very technical, but incredible understanding of the human condition. And Ogmandino's book, which is called The Greatest Salesman in the World. And one of his key principal takeaways from that book is that you are a slave to your habits. You may as well make them good ones. And right. the right. we tend to be slaves to our crappy habits. Yeah, that's a, that's a great takeaway. Excellent. Right. Simon, how can people get hold of you? How can people get hold of me? So connect with me on LinkedIn. There literally only is one Simon Gersler, spelled G-E-R-S-T-L-E-R. So they can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where a lot of my interactions take place. They can visit our website, pipeglobal.co as well. And they can contact us directly through there. And, you know, that that's, gives a bit of information about what we're doing. And I'll be happy to hear from any, any of your followers. And I love having conversations anyway about sales. I could talk about it all day. So one of the benefits of being more active on LinkedIn is I've established you know, dozens of new connections and learned a lot myself over the past year or so since I've been more active. Well, I was the only Marcus Kauke on LinkedIn. And then this bugger in Essex turned out. <laughs> Uh, in recruitment. Yeah. So I'm, I'm jealous now. And Marcus, if you're listening, good on you. So uh, Simon, thank you so much. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me on your show. 
And you know, I learned a lot, as I always do whenever I speak to you. So thanks for your insights too. And I'll certainly take you up on some of those book and blog recommendations. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful or insightful, then please like, comment, and share. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you feel the urge, then go to Apple Podcasts and scroll down just a little bit and then leave an honest review. You can give me as few or as many stars as you like, but I would appreciate the review because that gets more attention, apparently. And uh, in the meantime, uh, if you want to get hold of me, then email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. That's marcus at l-a-u-g-h-s hyphen l-a-s-t dot com. Or contact me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a great guest or you know someone who would be, then please put us in touch either via email or LinkedIn. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.